You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today again by Mark Stout, who is my immediate predecessor here at the Spy Museum, our third historian. He previously worked for 21 years in the national security community, including 13 years as an intelligence analyst for the State Department and then CIA. He is now director of the master's degree program in global security studies and also director of the graduate certificate in intelligence both at Johns Hopkins University's Krieger School of Arts and Sciences, advanced academic programs here in Washington, D.C. Mark did his Ph.D. dissertation back in the 1930s on the topic of American intelligence in World War I. I'm joking about that. It was the 1970s and is now revising that stem to stern into a book. He's also published in Intelligence National Security on the birth of U.S. intel culture in World War I and has a chapter in an edited volume coming out looking in part at the class background of War Department intel officers in World War I. So welcome, Mark. Thank you for, again, joining us here at SpyCast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hate to have to correct you, but it was actually the 1980s, so. He's still older than dirt. So um, it's good True. timing Good timing for this conversation. I'm glad we, we, we were able to put you in here before the year ended because we're presently in the 100th anniversary of World War I. And by the time this posted this will post next week 100 years ago last week was the launch of the 100 days which is a series of allied offenses that ended the war in france and belgium and then in next month in september marks the 100th anniversary of really the two big american offensives in that war uh the sami hell offensive in kind of the middle of the september and then the one that really ends the damn war the Meuse argonne offensive that goes from the end of september all the way through as we know 11th of November, which is Veterans Day or Armistice Day, depending on what country has decided to appropriate that holiday. The reason I like this conversation that we're about to have is because World War I le receives a ton of attention. World in, War II, you mean? 
World War One. World War Two. Ah, sorry. Uh, see, you're getting ahead of me, man. Didn't, didn't know where uh, you're going. You don't run this damn show anymore. <laughs> so World War One receives a ton way. of attention in the UK and France. There we go. That's yes. true. Yes. Uh, there's tons of books published. I mean, they obviously lived it a lot longer than we did. They lost way more people than we did. But there's true. not a lot in the United States, and even less on intelligence in World War One. So it's a it's a target rich environment. There's a lot of material there to deal with. So it's good to have someone doing the work. But let's ask this kind of fundamental question. How did you end up looking at World War I and American intelligence during that time? Well, way back when, uh, which we will leave a little vague, um, <laughs> when I was, was, uh, was looking around for a dissertation topic in history, I was very interested in military history. I'm also very interested, obviously, in intelligence and intelligence history. And one of my mentors, the wonderful uh, David Alvarez, uh, suggested that I have a look at American intelligence in World War I. And frankly, up to that point, I didn't know a whole lot about World War I. hadn't really sort of focused on it. And my, my immediate thought was, well, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I know intel in World War II has been completely done to death, so surely intel in World War I has been done to death. And I look around and I discover very, very little. Um, and uh, and so I, I went to the archives, started looking at some of the records, and routinely I'd open up folders, and it was pretty clear that I was the only person who'd opened these folders in decades, possibly since, you know, 1918, but certainly in decades. Um, well, that's a and, good feeling. Though, oh, it's a wonderful it? feeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a fabulous Ooh. feeling. And, 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 the, and the great thing about that then, from a practical point of view, was almost anything that I wanted to write about intelligence in world, American intelligence in World War I would be new. So it was a, it was a wide open field, uh, and I've been enjoying it ever since. I mean, and there's massive amounts of documents uh, oh, yeah. for the, you know, even though we were only there for about a year, we like to write stuff down. There's a lot of, do I mean, this is a military organization. Yeah, so... Um, so one of the great things about World War I is that it was so long ago that everything is declassified. Okay. Um, there's even still bits and pieces from World War II that aren't declassified. Not a lot, but a few. Yeah, World know. War One, you got it. Yeah, I'm sure you do. You know, you know better than I. Um, World War I, it's all there. Um, and even if you just look at the American expeditionary forces in France, so General Pershing's army in France, right? Even if you just look at that, and there was much more to it, I did a sort of a quick calculation. There was something like 900 linear feet of records at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. So three football fields just on that. And that's before you get to the War Department intelligence records, the Navy intel records, the State Department intel records, the Bureau of Investigation, today's FBI, uh, their records, all the personal papers in various repositories around. So there's a tremendous amount um, 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 to look at. Um, well, that's the key, isn't it? I mean, you, if you just did the AEF records, you would not even come close to having oh, a complete picture. Oh, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so, um, you know, American intelligence in World War I is often viewed as this sort of very small and ultimately inconsequential thing. But if you look at sort of all of its... And I'm not quite sure I like the metaphor I'm about to use, but its tentacles, it was a major and global, um, global endeavor. Um, and one of the things also... Um, that was neat about um, pursuing this as well was that everything published in the United States um, um, before, I don't know, 1924, 1925, something like that, is in the public domain. So there are lots and lots of people who wrote books, right. who wrote magazine articles and stuff about, you know, what I did in, you know, in, in World War I, and many of them Intel folks, that you can find on Google Books, and you, like you can find, you would never have known to look for them. Right, but they're there in full text in, in full Google text, Books. Right, it's awesome. so it's not like yeah. Google Books were like the page you need. No, and they're like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> it's the whole kit. It's the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, so I discovered just completely fortuitously all sorts of stuff there. 
there too that was really really useful. So um, as you as I think you said a moment ago, it's a, it's a target rich environment. And uh, once I've got my book out, I encourage everybody else to come jump into this pool. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to be done here. Well, if you put your book up free on the internet and Google Books, <laughs> then everyone can use that as a uh, yeah yeah. I'll right. give that the consideration it deserves. So uh, <laughs> let's talk a little. Let's not even get to World War One. Let's actually go a little bit before World War One because. If you know some of the basic history of American foreign policy, we were very, you know, introverted for quite some time. Yeah. But it wasn't World War One that kind of broke us out into the world stage. It's two decades before that, mm -hmm. right? We know where the Spanish-American War, and all of a sudden we have territories overseas in the Pacific, you know, Guam, the Philippines, and, and Latin America and Cuba, Puerto Rico, and we send the Great White Fleet around the world. We're all of a sudden a player on the world stage. You would think with that would come a desire or a need to do intelligence work. Um, you know, and there's little things here. To, there's operations in the Dominican Republic. There's chasing Pancho Villa all over the damn place. There are things that are military-focused that would require intelligence work as well. But, of course, as we know, we don't get a CIA until 1947. Right. So what what is going on prior to the war? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, the Spanish-American War was a turning point uh, in terms of American intelligence, and, and for a number of reasons, not least of which it uh, created a, 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 a bit of an American empire. Uh, but nonetheless, sort of after the Spanish-American War and before World War One started in 1914 in Europe, and remember, we didn't join until 1917, um, but American intelligence was pretty anemic. Uh, we don't need to go into all the bureaucratic twists and turns, but the War Departments so of the Army, basically, um, uh, sort of accidentally reorganized its intel office out of existence for about a decade there before World War I. Uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence did exist, but it was um, not exactly a place for high flyers, very small, um, not doing a whole lot, though they, they and the War Department did have attaches at a number of our embassies uh, overseas. Um, on the War Department side, uh, the attaches were sending stuff back to Washington where literally it was being filed with nobody having read it because there was really no central uh, intel office. State Department wasn't, um, wasn't in the business. Uh, to the extent that there was really much of anything going on, um, nor for that matter was the Bureau of Investigation. They, they, they weren't working on counter-espionage. There were almost no laws against espionage at the time anyway. Um, Really, to the extent there was action going on, it was literally in you know army forces in the field or that might be in the field, right? And the big effort here was um, in the um, dealing with the insurgency that arose in the Philippines mm -hmm. um, after we uh, you know annexed them, um, and a lot of people who were big players in intel in World War One cut their teeth initially in the Philippines. Uh, General Pershing was there and got exposed to intel. And the guy who headed the War Department's military intelli intelligence division during the war, a guy named Ralph Van Diemen, uh, was an intel officer in the Philippines. And that's where he became very interested in counter-intel. And the other, and you mentioned this just briefly, the other was um, the punitive expedition that General Pershing led into Mexico after Pancho Villa in 1916 and 1917. So Pershing went straight from that to heading the American Expeditionary Forces in France. And he took with him to France, a number of the folks who'd been intel officers in Mexico with him took them to France, right? And in Mexico, they experimented with uh, uh, um, airplane reconnaissance. They conducted espionage operations. Um, they conducted uh, SIGINT operations. Um, Pancho Villa's forces didn't have much in the way of radios uh, to intercept messages, but the Mexican government, which was also interested in where Pancho Villa was, did. They intercepted those. Um, they even conducted what you could with something that you know you might call on the border of a special operation, or you might also call a covert action. They actually um, 
recruited a number of ethnic Japanese in Mexico um, who could get to close to Pancho Villa to assassinate him. And they poisoned his coffee. Uh, and Pancho Villa even drank some of it, but he apparently didn't drink enough of it to die. So he got to sort of work out a lot of these sorts of things. But um, before the United States actually entered the war in um, April of 1917, there wasn't much going on in Intel. It wasn't dead, but it was... Kind of comatose. I mean, there's a conventional wisdom among historians and even historians of intelligence that really what slowed down American intel growth was the fact that they joined the war so late and the British and the French already been doing it for so long that, that we could really bring very little new to the table and we just kind of piggyback off of what they've been doing. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, when the United States entered the war in 1917, in, in intel terms, they were about where the British and the French had been in 1914, probably a bit behind, but in the same ballpark. But the British and French, th because they had no choice, had been learning rapidly. Uh, during that, you know, two and a half years um, before we entered, uh, whereas we'd kind of been stagnating. So, yeah, when Pershing takes his army overseas uh, with his intel officer, a guy named Colonel, later Brigadier General Dennis Nolan, um, the first thing they realize, is, the first thing they do is they go around and see how the French and British are doing this, realize, like, oh, my God, we didn't realize what a big, enormous intel task we'd just signed up for by sending, sending what we intend to, you know, have be an army, a full army to France. And... Um, so they looked around at like which of those which of those forces did intel in a way that they thought made the most sense and fit best with American practices, and they literally, literally copied the British Fifth Army's, um, for lack of a better term, field manual on intel, and adopted it as as American doctrine. And uh, Pershing made a few minor edits, signed off on it, and promulgated it. And like we just took the British system, lock, stock, and barrel, and that's what we did. Because they learned the hard way. I mean, if you look the beginning oh, of yeah. the war. There's no encryption. I mean, everyone is just in the clear. Remarkably I mean, unsophisticated uh, what yeah. the British and the French and the Germans and the right. Russians and the right. Italians, et cetera, uh, were doing at the beginning of the war. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, yeah. I, you know, so, I mean, my favorite example here is we think a lot about reconnaissance airplanes, uh, you know, a, a very important function, uh, intelligence function in World War One, And those date from the, you know, the very first weeks of the war. But initially that was people like, you know, pilots who are driving the plane with one hand, <laughs> scribbling a note with the other hand, and then dropping it over the side, right? Uh, you know, and you, you very quickly uh, progress from there to extremely sophisticated overhead photography and all the kinds of mensuration and imagery analysis and stuff, or they didn't call it that, but photo interpretation uh, that we take for granted today. But yeah, that was a breakneck you know, evolution that, the, that all the belligerents went through from 1914 to 1917 while we were sort of in the United States kind of twiddling our thumbs. I mean... There's a little bit going on. Isn't isn't this the time when Herbert Yardley is kind of standing up his group that does, you know, a lot of their big work yeah. after the war, but, you know, this is where the Black Chamber kind of kicks in again. Yeah, gear. so that's in 1917. So the United States enters the war in uh, April of 17, and more or less concurrently with Ralph Van Diemen, the guy I mentioned earlier, the Army officer who'd been in the Philippines, he'd been beating the drum for a long time. Uh, that the War Department in Washington needed to establish an intel component. And finally, basically, as we're getting to the war, um, the Army Chief of Staff agrees and puts Van Diemen in charge of standing up this new capability, intel capability. And one of the first people he hires was Herbert Yardley, who came on board, if I recall correctly, in the summer of 17. And Yardley um, is put in charge of a code-breaking uh, effort. 
um, which during the course of the war does some very, very good work. Um, they're also, by the way, in charge of uh, secret inks and decrypting foreign shorthand systems, you know, in intercepted mail, all, all sorts of things we don't necessarily think of like as, as, I don't know, the National Security Agency right. function these days. But um, yeah, um, Yardley, does, Yardley does very good work. Um, and of course, his organization uh, survives as a joint War Department, State Department effort after the war for uh, uh, more than a decade, actually, as the American Black Chamber. Um, but Yardley, and, and indeed everything that's going on in Washington is pretty strongly or pretty um, disconnected from what's going on in France, right? Because the, the ocean is big, right. and it's hard to communicate across. And the two main ways of doing that are radio, and you can send, but you can only send very, very, very small amounts of data across in radio, given the technology of the time, and transatlantic cables. Um, in late 16, or maybe January of 17, the British who owned almost all of those transatlantic cables, did what we would today call a bandwidth study, uh, which they then gave the, the Americans after we entered the war. And um, in very, very rough terms, what it boiled down to in today's sort of terminology is there was about 10 megabytes a month of bandwidth going each direction across the Atlantic. And we were intending on sending a multi-million man army to France, right? Um, and there'd have to be reporters and whatnot going with them. It just wasn't enough. And then, by the way, that summer, the Germans started cutting uh, cables, and they right. cut about half of them, right? And so, so basically, Pershing had to have his own almost entirely separate intel staff in France, almost completely without any assistance uh, from what was going on in Washington with the, you know, the War Department and, and the Navy Department. So they focused mostly on big-picture stuff that might be of you know, interest to like the Secretary of War or to the President, and also on domestic counterintelligence. That was, that was a big effort, was the counterintelligence effort in the United States, secure the home front, whereas everything to do with war fighting in you know, its most expansive definitions belonged to Pershing in France, far away on the other end of really thin cables. Well, it's almost like a regression. I mean, like you look at the Civil War as being really the first time where Washington within minutes could know exactly right. what was going on on the battlefield and where Lincoln could talk directly to the commander in the field, like McClellan, get your ass in gear kind of thing. And then you regress back to, you know, we're talking decades and decades later, where Pershing is kind of a czar on the battlefield. Oh, absolutely. No, that's that's absolutely right. That is, that is absolutely correct. Um, only the highest priority and briefest communications were possible in any kind of real time. Um, across the Atlantic, yeah. So, yeah, he was very much left to his uh, to his own devices with so, his staff. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the domestic intelligence side of things. As you mentioned, the Bureau of Investigation, it's not the FBI yet until the 1930s, the Bureau of Investigation has not stood up with a counterintelligence role. And, and, and in many respects, there is no federal agency that's kind of devised the do. Yeah. And, you know, that's absolutely right. Uh, so the Bureau of Investigation didn't really get into the counterespionage um, business until 1917 with the passage of the Espionage Act. Um, uh, and then they were joined, of course, by the War Department and the Office of <coughs> Naval Intelligence. Um, but um, I think one of the most interesting players in the domestic, um, and we'll come back to them in a minute, there, if, if you like, there's some really interesting things there too, but I think one of the most interesting players in the domestic counter-espionage uh, and counterintelligence business in this period was the State Department. So in 19, well, from, from when the war began in 1914 until the United States entered in 1917, um, the United States wasn't a belligerent in the war, but it was playing an important role. And what it was doing in particular, well, there were a couple things going on. One, it was supplying munitions, and draft animals and all that sort of stuff to the British, the French, and the Russians. So the Germans were not happy about that. Right. Um, 
and um, there was always the question, of course, of would the United States enter the war? And obviously the Germans didn't want the U.S. to do that, because if we entered the war, it wasn't going to be on the German side. So there was an extensive German effort to try and um, sabotage or gum up um, what today we call defense industry, right. right? So, you know, the famous explosion at Black Tom in, in New Jersey in 1916 was part of that, blowing up munitions that were supposed to go to the Russian army. Um, there was a campaign of firebombing of something on the order of, and I forget precisely, but something on the order of four dozen U.S. ships uh, that were carrying stuff across the Atlantic, uh, mounted by the Germans. And then, of course, there was sort of propaganda uh, efforts, sort of anti-British, pro-German, pro-central uh, power propaganda efforts by the Germans and the Austrian, Austro-Hungarians here in the United States. And the State Department began to get very worried about this. Um, and in 1915, they, using a few of their own people and also some people borrowed from the Bureau of Investigation, also some people borrowed from um, the U.S. Secret Service, started conducting counter-espionage operations to try and neutralize what the Germans were doing here in the U.S. Um, and that actually grew over time into conducting espionage overseas as well. So the State Department is not well known. Not a lot has been written about this. But uh, the State Department sent, started sending people overseas to conduct, you know, CIA-style espionage, sort of an outgrowth of this. They had people on the U.S.-Mexican border. They had folks in Switzerland. They had folks in revolutionary Russia and, and other places. Um, and well, what's, yeah. what's interesting, just to make sure everyone's on the same page, it's, it's very easy kind of in hindsight to look back and know the Germans are the bad guys. Yeah. Because we, we not only know kind of how the war ends and who we, what side we join, but it's, there's a knee-jerk reaction to equivocate World War One Germany with World War Two Germany. Right. I mean, we're looking backwards through World <laughs> right. War Two, through Hitler working right. our way and the Nazis back to World War One. But there's there was a huge division in the United States at the time between joining the British. I mean, not only do you have what eight or nine million German immigrants who yeah. lived in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and other places, but about the same or even more Irish immigrants. And this is a time period where the Irish and the English weren't getting along all that well. This is when Ireland is breaking off for self-rule. And not a single one of those people wanted us to join the war on the right. side of the English. And these weren't like bad people. This was the American population. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. The second most commonly spoken language in the United States um, in that time, after English, of course, was German. Right, Lots and lots of native German speakers. And as you said, they were um, Irish and Irish Americans here who had gripes against Britain. Um, much smaller population, but there were East Indians um, here in the United States who had gripes against Britain mm -hmm. because Britain was the colonial power in their home country. Um, and the German um, sort of espionage and subversion effort was very much playing off those populations, right? A lot of these things that were done um, in the United States, sort of at the behest of the Germans, were not actually done by, you know, uh, uh, German spies with, right. you know, little uh, uh, waxed mustaches. It was done by Irish or Irish Americans or Indians or African Americans who had gripes against the U.S. government or other kinds of populations. Well, and it's easier to do because you're not necessarily trying to convince someone to like the Nazis. Right. Right, where it's clear and it's obvious who the bad guys are. I mean, unless you're Charles Lindbergh or a couple others, it's clear and it's obvious the Nazis are the baddies. Right. And that was not clear in the case of, of Germany. Um, the Kaiser wasn't, I mean, I, I mix these up. The Kaiser was like first cousins with the queen something, or something so, like something that. Along, yeah, something along, the, the king actually, but yeah, something along, right. All of these royal families were, were horribly intertwined. Right. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, and it was all very well to say, I mean, if you look at, 
you know, Britain and France on the one side and Germany on the other side. Okay, the more liberal democracies have given those choices are Britain and France, no yeah. question about it. On the other hand, also on the side of Britain and France is Russia, Russia <laughs> which is not even vaguely democratic, right? right? So it's, it's all very confusing, right? Um, but yeah, um, so it was, it, was a, it was a complicated political situation and the Germans had, you know, much to play with here. Um, but when we enter the war then, um, you know, all of those people who had been, you know, a, a, a vigorous part of this, you know, entirely, um, entirely appropriate political debate about what should the United States do, a lot of those people, particularly the ones who spoke German, were suddenly very suspect. Yeah. So, you know, these days there's lots of discussion about, you know, are, are Muslims coming in for unwarranted surveillance in the United States? A hundred years ago, the corresponding issue was the Lutherans, right? Um, great a uh, very high percentage of Lutherans were native German speakers. There were many, many churches where the Sunday sermons were delivered in German, and God knows what they're saying to their, you know, right. to their flock, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and 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 people were investigated. Um, like military officers were investigated for things like looking German or for having a German housekeeper, uh, you know, those sorts of things. It was a, it was a it was a very strange time, and I think part of this also. Um, wasn't just a reflection of this idea of, you know, 100% Americanism, which was the, you know, a big slogan at the time, but also in the United States military, and remember a big proportion of this counterintelligence and counterespionage function was carried on by naval intelligence and war department intelligence, right, as well as the Bureau of Investigation supported by the state, but military was playing a very big role here. And the military from, you know, the late 19th century when we uh, started to reform the U.S. military after its post-Civil War doldrums had, had looked to Prussia, right, because, uh, which was now we were calling Germany, they were calling Germany, yep. um, because they were, the, they were the ones who were doing exciting, innovative, modern, scientific um, things with their military, and they'd won three consecutive wars in Denmark and, and France and Austria. It's not the order, but to go with it. Austria's in the middle. Austria's in the middle, exactly. Um, <laughs> 60, uh, 64, 66, and 70, 71. Yeah. Very good, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that, I mean, yeah, that's Bismarck. That's the unification it, it, of Germany. That, whole thing, that is yeah. redefining new warfare and appearing on the scene as a unified Germany and scaring the hell out of everybody. Absolutely, yeah. Very impressive to the U.S. military as it was reforming itself. And one of the things that they looked at, and here their history was just plain wrong, but they looked at a guy in Prussia named Wilhelm Steiber um, who had been... Um, who had been an intel guy uh, working for the, for the Prussian government, but there was this mythology built up around him that one of the reasons that the, that the Germans had been so successful, particularly in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, was because Steiber had hired literally tens of thousands of German spies and had flooded all of France, right? Um, so they knew everything that went on in France and had subverted everything in France. Um, this, of course, was BS. It was okay, the railroads. But, but anyway, go ahead. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but it was widely believed, right? And so there was this um, sense along, among a lot of American intel officers that when we enter World War I, like, there must be thousands and thousands and thousands of German spies here. That's, that's what they did in France. That's what made them successful beating France, which was, you know, the major continental military right. power, like, you know. Um, and so they must be doing it here. Where are they? They we can can't swim find them. really, really well. <laughs> the, the fact is, I mean, this was, as I say, this was all garbage, right? I mean, once we actually, once the United States actually entered the war, the German espionage and subversion threat and the Austro-Hungarian one, which had always been smaller, basically went to zero. Um, you know, the, um, it was very hard to communicate given wartime censorship regimes between Germany and, and here. We threw out their, you know, the, the, their diplomats. 
Um, and the penalties for espionage went through the roof, like from zero to like real jail time right. or, or, or potentially even worse. So during the actual war, the, the real espionage threat was actually near zero. But that didn't, didn't, re- didn't stop a lot of did not stop American much civilian groups like the APL yeah. and others from, I mean, perhaps this was using a potential threat to fulfill policy positions of anti-immigrant and Yeah, so that, no, it's a very good point. Yeah, there was a lot going on here in, in, in terms of um, protecting the American war effort against the German subversion threat and espionage threat um, that also served other interests that had things to do with like, you know, race and social class and well, labor and unions, labor unions. Yeah. exactly, yeah. Because, so the idea here was that if you're a pacifist, right, in your mind, you may be a pacifist because you know you're 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 a socialist and you think this is an imperialist war on both sides and like you know the working class is getting killed and screwed out of all of this and so there, there's no good answer. We we need to be pacifists and we need to uh, avoid the draft. That may be your reason. The War Department and the Navy look at you and say, well, either you're a German agent or you're doing the work of the Germans even without being a paid German agent. Either way, you are the equivalent. You know, it comes to the same thing. Right. So we're going to treat you like an enemy, right? Um, and so, yeah, things like the international workers of the world, um, uh, you know, African Americans who were trying to improve their, their their lot in life here in the United States, all kinds all kinds of groups came in for uh, came in for for, for for pressure here. Well, this is right in the middle of the progressive movement, where you're talking yeah. about weekends and five day work weeks and child labor laws and you know women's suffrage. Shut and, up! You're obviously pro German. Yeah, yeah. well, that's the thing. Is, I mean, you, you you could use these kinds of invisible threats that weren't even they're so invisible they weren't there yeah to bolster up whatever you know far right or left political oh yeah absolutely i mean one of my favorite examples because i think you know from today's perspective is just so appalling right so the seventh seventh day adventist right the uh, christian denomination they published a book during uh, and I forget if it was 1917 or 1918. Doesn't I think it was 18. Doesn't matter. Um, published a book, just a religious book about you know theology, right? That contained in it um, uh, basically sort of a pacifist message. Well, the War Department's military intelligence division got a hold of this book and said, you know, you are on the wrong side of the Espionage Act, and the church withdrew 135,000 copies of this book and then reprinted it with changed theology to be a pro-war book. God wants to kill in exactly. the crowds. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Can you imagine that that happening today? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> reports d- report directly to the Supreme Court. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. 
talk about things involving the federal government, you mentioned the Supreme Court, but the idea is that there are now two new laws in 17 and 18 right. that strip the American public of kind of any kind of power against pushing back against this hysteria. Yeah, the Espionage Act of 17 and the uh, Sedition Act of 1918, um, which um, just did grievous damage uh, to free speech. Um, it became illegal to um, you know, uh, criticize the U.S. government to say bad things about the American flag. Um, the black letter of the law actually even forbid the publication of secret information. And that, that provision is actually still on the books in the Espionage Act, is not enforced these days. But if you, technically speaking, yeah. you know, if the New York Times, for instance, gets a leak from Edward Snowden, um, it's illegal for them to publish it under the Espionage Act, like actually illegal. Um, it, it no one's probably challenged lose it. No that, one's challenged yeah. it, but yeah. back in the World War One, right. like that was a that was a going con- that was a real thing, right? Right. Um, so yeah, very very um, very draconian. Um, and you had um, uh, you know, and the federal government was vigorously enforcing um, these. Um, there were some sometimes some a little bit of frustration on the part of military intelligence that um, judges didn't take sufficiently seriously, you know, the German threat. Um, but nonetheless, it was a pretty grim time in terms of civil, er- civil liberties and, and, and speech and that sort of thing. And, and it wasn't just the government as well. I, you alluded um, a couple of minutes ago to the American Protective League. So this was a group um, founded in Chicago right as we were getting into the war, founded by three businessmen in Chicago. And um, ultimately, it came to be um, a quarter of a million people across the country. And they were sort of an un- unofficial investigative service. They got some sort of license from the or, you know, blessing from the Justice Department. But they would chase down people who hadn't registered for the draft. They would do the equivalent of what we today would call background investigations on people who were seeking commissions in the military. Um, they would be on the lookout for, for those non-existent German spies. Um, they had formal liaison with not only the, the Justice Department, but with military intelligence and with naval intelligence. Um, and, um, and, and you know, they, they were sort of everywhere. They published an official, well, official is the wrong word, an authorized history um, right after the war was over, which has some passage in it to the effect of, you know, they looked on their job um, uh, uh, as, as uh, making people who were potentially sympathetic to the Germans afraid um, and thus make them keep their heads down and not do anything out of line. Right. Uh, you, to the credit of the Justice Department, the moment the war ended, yeah. they said, "Thank you very much for your service. Um, we, we, you know, we're with, we're, we're uh, revoking our uh, sort of uh, endorsement of what you do. Please disband." And right. they did, I mean, but it was, it was, it was, it was remarkable. Serious. This isn't like like the Oath Keepers that are like stopping immigrants, you know, in Arizona today. These guys carried badges. Yep, they, they carried badges. Documents. It's, the badges said a, Secret Service yes. on them. Um, and yeah, and they would, you know, they'd uh, they'd they'd stop people on the street and demand to s- and demand to see documentary proof of whether they'd registered for the draft. They'd go into you know bars, uh, and uh, you know sort of corner all the men in the bars and you know ensure that they'd registered for the draft. Uh, they'd send in all sorts of reports about suspicious flashing lights or you know, Lord only knows that might be spies signaling. Um, they were everywhere. So let's let's look big picture. Mm-hmm. Let's actually. The, we got the counterintel side. There wasn't any need for it, and we still tried to do it anyway. But let's let's talk about big picture strategic intelligence overseas. Mm-hmm. And you've already talked about there's there's some organizations that exist already. There's mm-hmm. you know what becomes G two Army Intelligence right. MID. There's ONI, 
Uh, and then you even said state was doing a lot of right. jobs in this case also. So let's, let me ask before we get into what they did, let me ask about who they were. Mm -hmm. um, you said that this was kind of a dead-end job for a lot of people, certainly within uh, the military. Uh, up to the war. Up to the war. Um, did you start seeing kind of a, a better better breed of, of soldier joining Intel at that point? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the... The, the the navy and even more so the army uh, expands radically when the war happens. Right, our our military is very small and then becomes enormous during the course of the war. So m the vast majority of people in intel, as in the rest of the military, have come straight from civilian life. <clears throat> and uh, on the intel side, both in the navy and in the war department, um, a lot of the folks who end up in intel are from you know the upper upper socioeconomic strata. So when the Office of Naval Intelligence establishes an office in New York City, a branch office in New York City, um, it's, uh, it's uh, the, the guy who they put in charge of it um, pays for the office space on Wall Street out of his own pocket because, of course, that's the right thing to do, right? You know, he's, and he's the kind of guy who can, right? right? Um, in the Military Intelligence Division, they end up with about, um, about 200 officers in, uh, uh, in, in Washington. Um, and uh, at any given time, and, 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 and many others who sort of rotate through at various times. Um, a, a colleague of mine, a friend, Lon Strauss, he's a great historian. He's at Quantico now. He, he did a look at who these people were. And this is in an era, mind you, when 3% of Americans have gone to college. Okay, At that time, 40% of the people who served in the military intelligence division had gone to college. About 13% of the total had gone to the Ivy Leagues. And quite a number of these people had PhDs. Like, nobody had a PhD in 1917, right? right? But they were not rare. No one else had a Germany, right? I mean, it was literally... <laughs> right, sure, yeah, yeah they're probably in Germany. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you saw lots of... Um, uh, lots of lawyers and um, and academics and and that sort of and people of mean business people uh, businessmen almost exclusively though even the secretarial pool uh, in the military intelligence division they uh, they got the the dean of Barnard College uh, to recruit secretaries for them so you were getting the the best and the brightest there too um, so it was um, it was a very atypical group it was a very very atypical group and um, and Ralph Van Diemen, whom I mentioned a couple of times, um, sort of described that like the kind of people he was looking for in military intelligence were, and I forget his precise phrase, but it was something along the lines of the better class of people, you know, the kind of people who are invested in our system. Um, and uh, and he explicitly said, by the way, that that did not include private detectives, so because uh, <laughs> they were yeah they were kind of low class, right. right? I mean, there were a lot of class things going on in in, in the United States with intel during World War One. It's a little different than Donovan looking for PhDs who can win a bar fight. Yeah, but it's the same. <laughs> it's it's but it's in the ballpark. Yeah, it is in the ballpark. <laughs> I mean, if you think of all the all the the OSS types that were yeah. Ivy League and upper upper class, and and um, and some of these folks, it, uh, um, you know, were sent overseas. So one of my favorites is the Office of Naval Intelligence. So during the war, they're very concerned about the possibility that there's a secret German submarine base in Mexico or maybe farther south somewhere else in Central America. So they sent um, a handful of, of archaeologists and anthropologists, like no kidding, actual academic archaeologists, uh, the most famous guy named Sylvanus Morley, down to Mexico to do archaeological research, right? Lots of archaeology to be done in Mexico. Um, and by the way, find the secret German submarine base. There's a great book on this uh, by, uh, called um, The Archaeologist Was a Spy, which I can definitely recommend to anybody listening to this about, the, about Morley. The same Mexico that told the Germans to go to hell? Yeah, that with one. With the whole Zimmerman teller. That one, that. yeah. Like somehow yeah. there's a sub-base down there now. 
Yeah, don't investigate it yeah. too closely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Germans, you, you have to understand, Vince, the Germans are everywhere, right? right? right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, and Mexico was a concern in other ways, too. Um, so um, we've talked a little bit about Yardley and his code-breaking operations uh, for the War Department. Um, but he wasn't the folks doing the, the intercept operations, right? There was, that was another part of military intelligence. And they had, a, they had an intercept base up in Maine. They also had a number of them along the U.S.-Mexican border. And at one point in 1918, the, um, the intercept station in Tucson, Arizona, detects a signal, uh, a Japanese radio station um, in Panama. And so the Japanese officially are allies in this right. war. But we've been very, ever since sort of the Spanish-American War and, and, the, and the real number that the Japanese did to the Russians in the, in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 or 1905, we've been sort of looking at them like, what are your ambitions? We're not sure right, you've got our best interests at heart yet. Port Arthur, they kicked the living they, crap oh, out yeah, of the Russians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a race thing going on there, too, yeah. just by the way. Anyway, so um, the, uh, the, the War Department intercept station in Tucson detects this unexplained Japanese radio station in Panama, and there's a brief kerfuffle um, until they realize that they've got their direction finding 180 degrees wrong. <laughs> and if you draw the line in the other direction, it's in Yokohama. Oh, okay. <laughs> nothing, nothing nefarious going on here, after all. These are professionals. <laughs> these are professionals. These are, these all right, are. They had a few things to learn. So uh, you talk about Mexico. Obviously, the southern border is going to be something we pay attention sure. to. Yeah. Um, is this a worldwide intelligence effort, or oh, is it something that's just kind of localized? No, it's it's very much uh, all around the world. Um, every just just as World War One really was. I mean, we focus on France, but we're very much a, a, a world war. Um, we the um, the military sent um, folks to do espionage in China. Um, there were people running around Central America and, and all over Europe. And some of the main sort of um, uh, loci, if that's a word, locuses uh, of espionage in Europe were the neutral countries. So, right. so I was going to ask. Yeah. I mean, world War, think of World War II and Switzerland. The same Dulles exact and, deal, yeah. yeah. In fact, Alan Dulles was doing intel stuff in, in Switzerland in World War I for the State for Department State. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, his famous story about almost meeting Lenin, uh, which probably our listeners all know. But yeah, so Switzerland, the Netherlands, and Denmark were particularly important because they were neutral in World War One. Um, so we and the British and the French could operate intel operations out of that, and they and they uh, and they bordered Germany, right? Uh, which was good in all sorts of ways. Um, well, the Netherlands especially was kind of like Casablanca, World War Two. Oh, it's absolutely, a grand yeah. Central Station because it was purposely kept neutral to kind of be this international area where trade went through i mean yeah during the war i mean the, the ridiculous thing about world war one is germany's number one trading partner during the war was britain yeah you know they're fighting Just each other to at the one death, remove yeah and they're still trading <laughs> goods with each other but all went through that, yeah that's absolutely right the, the 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 dutch german border was basically open to business traffic um and that provided all sorts of espionage opportunities um when the Americans showed up in 17 and said, hey, we're here, we're going to do espionage in the Netherlands, it was such a rich environment that actually the French and the British said, like, why don't you not? Because uh, <laughs> we're having a good time here, and you're, right. you don't the know US what you're doing. stumble and bumble their exactly. way in there yeah. and burn every um, source. There was a bit of a similar controversy in Switzerland. But, um, but nonetheless, the United States established itself there, and most of its espionage in the Netherlands was actually done by the military attaché. Um, and just to give a, an, an example of the kinds of cases that they were running, I mean, nothing like super flashy, like no Oleg Penkovsky who's giving you the crown jewels right. or anything like that. But um, they did run a case, for instance, um, 
they had a guy, a German, that they recruited who was able to legitimately go to the Netherlands from time to time, um, who was bringing out information. He was connected with the newspaper business in Germany, and he was able to provide information on what the German censors were not allowing the German newspapers to say or to talk about, which was useful information right. in terms of things like gauging morale, gauging the food supply in Germany, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, nothing super flashy, but some really good solid work was, was done out of these places. Um, in Switzerland, the one case, the one espionage case in World War I where, where we were running somebody that may have been really actually a big deal, and it's, it's not well known, it's also a little controversial among the people who do know about it, is um, there was a State Department consular officer, a guy named James McNally. Um, <clears throat> so he was in the consular service, uh, so which was sort of a notch below the Foreign Service at the time. And um, he'd been serving in China, and his daughter had been there and had met a German naval officer and had married him. So this guy's son-in-law is a German naval officer. And he's posted, and McNally is posted to Switzerland during World War I. Um, and somehow through his son-in-law, and it was never quite clear if the son-in-law was the source or like exactly what was going on, but because of the son-in-law, McNally had access to you know, high-level German naval uh, thinking and was able to provide all sorts of information about what the German uh, Navy was uh, up to. Problem was, McNally was almost completely impossible to get along and utterly alienated everybody from every <laughs> other U.S. government agency who was there. Um, even got himself arrested by the French at one point when he went on a business trip from Switzerland uh, to to uh, to uh, to to um, American Expeditionary Forces headquarters. Um, and it was never quite clear in retrospect if he was given good stuff. Uh, if he was getting good stuff about the German Navy or if this was just all junk that he was being fed. But we do know that President Woodrow Wilson was an avid reader uh, of this and uh, of this material from McNally and from his German Navy sources. And when he heard that McNally was being hassled by other Americans, like basically almost literally in these terms, told those other U.S. officials to sit down and shut up because they didn't know what McNally was doing. It was really important to leave right. him alone. We, we kind of started this conversation talking about the AEF and, mm -hmm. and their role uh, within this. And there's a lot of information out there about the relationships between the commanders in World War II and intelligence, right? Like where Patton loved it and not so much MacArthur working the OSS and how Eisenhower used some of the D-Day deception intelligence. And there's it's well known, right? There's books on top of books on top of books about Montgomery and intelligence yeah. and all all well-detailed, well-researched, well-understood. So Pershing is really the only commander that comes to mind when you think of American forces in World War One. Right. I mean, everyone else He's was the there, yeah. <laughs> right? Eisenhower and Truman, everybody else. Marshall were, was there. Right, they were all lieutenants. They're captains, <laughs> right? So Pershing is the guy. So really, the question comes, did Pershing embrace intelligence work? Was he somebody that appreciated it? Was he somebody that took seriously what he was being told by his G2? Yeah. So Pershing was not somebody who was fascinated by intelligence. He certainly wasn't captive to intelligence, but he took it very seriously. Um, and um, uh, uh, Dennis Nolan, his G2, his intel, chief intel officer, was one of the only people on Pershing's staff who had a standing appointment with Pershing every day and who furthermore um, was authorized to uh, roust Pershing out, you know, out of bed or out of anything he was doing any time, day or night when he needed to talk to him. Um, and Pershing, as I mentioned earlier, had taken a personal role in, you know, sort of selecting British Fifth Army intel doctrine right. to be our field manual. So, yeah, he, as I say, he was, 
you know, this this wasn't what he lived and breathed, but he took it very seriously. And um, and he had very clearly, when he um, um, commanded the punitive expedition in Mexico in 16 and 17, very clearly been looking for, like, what are the, you know, what is technology providing us here that can be useful in terms of, of, of you know, providing intel support to the commander and was nurturing some of those officers. So, um, yeah, I think he was, um, I think he was, um, the kind of commander that an intel officer would want to serve under. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, this is a time when some of the technical collection means are really kind of coming to the forefront. Oh, yeah. We've already talked about SIGINT, and you already talked about aircraft, too. But you know, there's things that open source. We're looking at kind of everything from traffic analysis to yeah. you know, the trains. Yeah, so there's a lot of things going on in the intel realm. So um, um, German newspapers are very important um, in terms of tracking things like the German order of battle. So the German... Um, uh, the way the German um, uh, military is organized. Um, so that was a great use to um, analysts in the American Expeditionary Force. You couldn't subscribe to German newspapers from, you know, U.S. Army headquarters <laughs> in France, but you could subscribe to them in Switzerland, uh, where we had people. And uh, the German newspapers, of course, like, you know, probably everybody's newspaper during the war, um, did not print... Um, you know, the names of units and where they were on the battlefield or that kind of thing, um, except obituaries. Officers were allowed to, or people writing obituaries were allowed to say where their departed loved ones, like what units they'd served in. And that actually provided a great source of, of, of data uh, for uh, order of battle. Um, obviously interrogating prisoners, capturing documents through raids and off of, off of prisoners was uh, very important. They developed uh, this whole sort of I don't know, science is too strong a word, but sort of methodology for interrogating prisoners, and you need to get to them in the first few hours, and you can introduce people into the prisoner cage who are, you know, um, German-speaking Americans who can be stool pigeons, who can elicit information, right. and that sort of, all this sort of stuff. Um, and, um, yeah, and all sorts of, other, like, some other interesting means, too. Um, so we think of signals intelligence as being, you know, pulling radio waves out of the air. Um, and that certainly was a very important source for the American Expeditionary Force, as it was, you know, back in in, in North America. But also, signals intelligence could be done um, in in other ways. So some of the technologies of the time that both the armies on both sides were using were were buzzers and field telephones that prop promulgated electrical signals through the ground. And so. Um, those were relatively easy to tap. You just put, uh, you know, electrical leads into the ground and. And you're sucking up the the, right. the, the enemy signals. Um, so there were there were a lot of things a uh, lot of things going on here, ranging from the very low tech of you know foot patrols to what was for the time very high tech of you know signals intelligence and code breaking and aerial photography. Uh, and it was a, it was really quite a vast organization. Well, there's also a kind of a, a coming to fruition of counterintelligence, and I don't yeah. mean catching spies. I mean preventing them from doing intel work against you. Everything yeah. from Figuring out that if we shoot the airplane down, that they may not actually be able to kind of report back yeah. where we are, or balloons, or even things like, I mean, you can go back to like World War II for the, no World War II, Jesus, for the Civil War for concepts like Quaker guns and other mm -hmm. things like yeah. that too. But this is really where they're starting to embrace camouflage and understanding that um, deception can be a pretty important, you know, as good as this new technology is for doing intelligence, it can also be fooled and deceived, and the more people get reliant on overhead reconnaissance or reliant on signals intelligence, we can feed them disinformation or reliant on what they assume that they're seeing through photographic interpretation, we can play with their heads a little bit. Oh, no, that's absolutely right. So um, 
during the war, I mean, we have this we have this romantic image, right, of of of, uh, of, of World War One fighter pilots, World War One yes. fighter aces, right? And like, that was a real thing, like Snoopy and Snoopy and the Red Baron. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, like who doesn't who doesn't love Snoopy? Um, uh, probably the third leading ace after Rick and Bachner and Frank Luke was Snoopy, I imagine. But uh, at any rate. Um, but ultimately, and even Eddie Rickenbacker, America's leading ace, wrote this after World War I. Ultimately, the entire purpose of all of this was to protect observation aircraft, right? Bombing, there was some bombing, militarily trivial during World War I. Yeah, the little came, chucking came, yeah, bombs out the side. Not super big deal. Yeah. Big deal in World War II and after World right. War I, not so much. The real point was protecting those observation aircraft. Um, and those observation aircraft were great because they could provide tremendous precision in terms of location. Um, and seeing far into the enemy's rear that was unprecedented. Um, so if you're an artillery guy, like, right, you know, this is great. spotting is yeah. the key, yeah. Um, but as you say then, that then encourages um, camouflage and deception. So photo interpreters um, soon learned things like if you walk on snow, that's pretty obvious, but if you walk on grass or even dirt, then it, that from above, that changes the appearance of the dirt. So you can find interesting things by looking at where the footpaths are from overhead. Um, so then... Um, people started thinking about like how do how do we camouflage these? We put up netting, or we put up um, um, barriers so that maybe aircraft can still see over them. But the balloons that were also an important reconnaissance thing, so looking at a lower angle may not be able to see. The Americans even had this idea of, well, instead of camouflaging footpaths, what if we created a bunch of fake footpaths uh, to fool German photo interpreters? And they discovered that there was this particular kind of um, matting of, of material that was used to make women's clothes in Madagascar, that when you put it on the ground, it looked like dirt that had been walked on. It looked from above like dirt right. that had been walked on. And the U.S. Army bought 10,000 miles of this stuff. I imagine women in Madagascar were, were, <laughs> were unable to go out of the house because they had no clothing anymore. I don't know. But they bought 10,000 miles of this stuff to create fake footpaths just to deceive the Germans as to like where our headquarters or our bunkers or you know, or maybe to lead them to um, positions where they were fake artillery pieces, right. right? Things like that. So yeah, there was this very much sort of back and forth, offense, defense, cat and mouse kind of game in uh, in in the overhead reconnaissance or the or the the photo interpretation world. Because this was the war where it's a black hole of traditional intelligence gathering on the battlefield, and there's no cavalry, right? Right. You have cavalry leading all the way up to World War One being essentially the number one means of intelligence collection yeah. on the battlefield, and then of course it picks up back again. In World War II, with the speed of the advance and with the Bewegungskrieg and the you know war of motion that the Germans create, and then of you know till now, you know as a former cavalryman myself, it's incredibly important, the most important thing you can possibly have in all of combat. But <laughs> but in World War One, it ceased to exist, right? I mean, you had a static battlefield where everyone's just kind of sitting there, and so you don't have the opportunity to have people running around pulling in information. Is that what forces this reliance on technology? Um, well, so, I, I mean, I think there's two things going on. Uh, you, you, the static battlefield and the fact that there were basically no flanks for, for the cavalry to go around to conduct reconnaissance missions was part of it. Um, and the other was, frankly, that for um, most purposes anyway, um, well, for most purposes relating to cavalry and reconnaissance, the aircraft is a better solution, yeah. right? So the aircraft and then, and then later the armored car and the tank killed the cavalry, right, um, together, right? Uh, the armored, uh, the well, tank sort of killed the cavalry in its combat function. The horse cavalry. The, it killed it, thank you. It killed the <laughs> horse cavalry. Killed the well, horse cavalry, yes. Anyway, go ahead. Um, but in terms of its reconnaissance function, which had always been a very important role for American cavalry, America has a 
sort of a light cavalry tradition as opposed to the European heavy cavalry, you know, knights with lances right. sort of kind of thing. Um, yeah, the aircraft did them in because they, they were just better. Um, and, um, uh, you know, uh, and in any event, there were no flanks. So right. you can fly over the front lines. You can't gallop over the front lines. So let me ask you, we've talked a lot about American intelligence. We've hinted at this in the beginning, but how much of a... So let's not get ahead of ourselves. The, the, I assume people know this, but let's make sure. We were not an allied power right. in we World War I. We were an associated party. power. Right. So we were not under the big, broad... You know, we weren't under British commanders. Pershing's maintained command, even though we were fighting the same bad guys. And, you know, we had the same allies, but we did not get there and decide to... Uh, be under British or French command. Did we embrace the kind of multinational force against the central powers? Was there, yeah. was there an intel sharing? Was there yeah. working together on this? No, it's a great question. So the the goal of Pershing and the Secretary of War and indeed of the President all along was um, that the you know ultimately we're going to have an, a completely independent American army on the battlefield in World War One, and in, we ended up with a first army and then in the literally the last couple of days of the war the second army uh, as well uh, that was accomplished um, but on the intel side there was a great deal of sharing among the British and the French uh, and the Americans the Belgians less so just because they were a smaller power also to some degree among the Italians though there were a couple of things going on first off the U.S. military didn't have a lot of folks fighting and U.S. army didn't have a lot of folks fighting in Italy a few so there wasn't as much push and also um, as I've indicated in other contexts in this conversation, the United States sort of fell in with the way and sort of with the way the British and the French uh, were doing intel, and the British and the French didn't really trust the Italians. They thought they were sort of insecure yeah. and 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 uh, and buffoonish. Again, there may have been a little bit of you know sort of stereotyping going on there as well. But particularly the British and the French, very close relations. So on a couple of things, I'll, I'll note. So for instance, number one, an order of battle, like sort of the organ the size and the organization and the structure of the German army, right? It is in everyone's interest. If the if the um, British, sort of off at the far left-hand side of the uh, Allied lines, um, realize that um, some German divisions that used to be in front of us have vanished, it's in everyone's interest for them to let the French and the Americans know that, because those divisions may show up op opposite the, the the French or the Americans, uh, you know, for an offensive next week, right? And the line gets broken anywhere, and we're all in deep trouble. Right. Okay. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, the two sides, uh, the, the allies are also sharing uh, information from their train spotting networks in Germany. So um, the British and the French particularly, the Americans in a modest way, recruit people in Germany um, and also in Belgium to literally watch German trains. And so a German infantry unit has a particular set of train cars, right? And a cavalry unit has another set of kind of train cars and our trillion has a third. And so literally it would be um, uh, housewives and shopkeepers and whatnot who in the course of their normal day like would be looking over railroad tracks and they would count trains and they'd send those reports forward and those would be shared. And so like, you know, if you're way back in central Germany, okay, divisions coming west, all right, everybody needs to know about that. And they get a little closer. Okay, so now the divisions are heading towards where either the French or the American sector, we're not sure, and then we share that information. And then, okay, so it's the French sector, and now it's this part of the French sector. You can sort of, you know, see them going on. Right. On the code side, um, again, the Germans um, are using the same kinds of trench codes and also at the higher levels, the strategic ciphers opposite the British and the French and the Americans and the Belgians, right? 
and um, and it was very quickly realized that if you're you know that a, if a code breaker from one country gets a gets an insight into how this system works, they got to share it. Right. right. Again, it's in everyone's enlightened self interest. Um, and uh, and actually, on the code breaking side, the American and French relations were particularly good. I think it's being a question there of particular personalities. And we're talking a very small group of people here. But they were very good. They were extremely good. Oh yeah. I think one of the reasons that you get things like the Enigma in World War II is because the German codes were were so effectively taken apart during the First World War. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a British code breaker, uh, sorry, a French code breaker named Panvin. There was an American named Childs, and also an American that many of the listeners have probably heard of named uh, William Friedman, who was in this <laughs> business, um, a minor figure. Uh, he just uh, later helped um, break into the Japanese purple system. Uh, no big deal. And ended his career, actually, as an, as an officer at NSA in the 50s. Um, yeah, they, they all um, cut, their, cut their teeth there. So there was a lot of sharing. And there was sharing, too, among the Allies in various other places, right? So in Argentina, for instance, the attaches from the Americans, the British, the French, and there the Italians would have regular meetings to sort of share information on sort of the German counter-espionage or the German espionage and subversion threat in Argentina. Like, what have you got and what have you got? Right. Some of these places, they were even keeping um, uh, sort of a, um, a common card file of suspects. So, yeah, there was a lot of sharing. Very much similar, or not similar to, but maybe... Um, harbinger of you know things like the Five Eyes community and the right. NATO community of, of, of the present day where there's and lots of international sharing. Argentina's long relationship with the Germans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no comment on that. Our Argentinian friends out there, we don't mean you and all your <laughs> friends named Adolfo. Um, so let's wrap this up by talking about kind of the belief, and, and I think it, there's a reason behind it, but you can kind of break it down for us, that when the war ended, so did any real intelligence. I mean, you know, we're when we kicked into World War II, we had to rebuild just about everything. So how bad did it get? Um, and did it, you know, is the perception that we basically got rid of everything after every war we fought since the beginning of the American Republic is, is the case after World War I? Um, yeah, so there was a major demobilization of everything to do with the military and the war effort after World War I, as there had been after the Civil War, right. as you know it. Uh, and after our previous wars, and for that matter, as there was to some degree after World War II. So it got bad in U.S. intelligence, but it didn't go away. Um, I actually ran the numbers. The, um, the uh, War Department Intel organization shrank exactly in proportion hmm. with the degree to which the actual army shrank, right? It was like to within like, you know, like the third digit after the decimal place or something insane. It was like a very strong correlation. Um, and and so War Department Intel, Navy Intel, both continued during the war. Um, the, the military continued, like never again would it be without reconnaissance aircraft. Um, never again would there be a time where there wasn't a code-breaking organization in one or another U.S. government agency. Um, and quite a number of the important players in World War II Intel had cut their teeth in World War I. William Friedman, whom I just right. mentioned, being by far the most important. Um, and even... Even the State Department's efforts um, in the intelligence realm continued, you know, actually for a pretty good time. We've talked a, a, a good bit here about um, Herbert Yardley, who did the code breaking for War Department in Washington during World War One. After World War One, the War Department and the State Department jointly get together to keep his organization going as the American Black Chamber. That continued until 1929. Right. Uh, very famous story, the whole Stimson, uh, you know, gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail. Um, and I've mentioned also that the State Department was abroad doing espionage, like no kidding espionage. That continued until 1927. 
Um, and um, it's still not clear to me, and um, I don't think anyone, uh, why it ended, actually. That's work that needs to be done. Well, and so there's some incredible successes, too. I mean, the 1922 the Washington Naval Conference. Yeah, it was that, a great success. That's as good for as the, it gets, right? Yeah, it was a great success for Yardley and his Black Chamber. That was, I mean, that was stellar, right? And, and uh, you know, that was after the demobilization. So, yeah, so American intelligence was certainly hollowed out, but the basic functions that were, were there... Um, and that's that's basically the thrust of, of my dissertation and of the of the book that I'm now building out of it is that that the birth to my mind of modern American intelligence was in World War One. It's not with the National Security Act of 1947. That if you're looking at sort of the the U.S. intelligence community and the right. legal structures and all that kind of stuff, yeah, okay, fine. It's 1947, the creation of CIA and all of that. But if you're looking at sort of a lower level of like, do we have you know continuously existing intelligence organizations? Do the major intelligence disciplines exist right. the code breakers the analysts the imagery interpreters the case officers the counterintelligence folks that's all there by the time world war one is over and never goes away it gets anemic but it never ever goes away um and uh yeah so i think the uh you know u.s intel died after world war one story is um um vastly overstated so when, when do we expect the book uh give me about a year okay <laughs> all right that, that's so we'll we'll have you back to talk about it in a year look forward to it um do these chapters in intelligence national security um or the edited volume about to come out give a little bit of a preview to what you've been talking yeah about? absolutely the the intelligence and national security article uh, gives sort of my, the big picture uh, big picture article and uh and the the edited volume is a volume being put together by some british scholars uh, uh sorry european a brit a uh, a French scholar and a German looking at um, the intelligence cultures of US, UK, France, and Germany uh, um, before the Cold War. Uh, and um, I'm not sure they settled on a title uh, for that, but that should be out soon, too. All right. Well, Mark Stout uh, is my predecessor here. Uh, for all of you complaining that you'd rather have him doing this, well, here you go. It's the best of both worlds. <laughs> he had a, his big smile on his face right now. It doesn't happen that often, but every so often. You get somebody like, one stout coming back? Well, here he is. Um, <laughs> and we'll certainly have him back again. Uh, he is, I think you have the record now. Yes, I think I've beaten Mark Zaid now. Yeah, you Mark. might be up two on Zaid, so we might have to have Zaid back because he's going to get really jealous soon uh, that you, you have this record. So, Lo Mark, Love you, Mark, if you're listening. <laughs> Mark Stout, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us on SpyCast. Uh, I'm glad we got a chance to do this because we're about to be uh, – not the anniversary anymore, and, and no one's going to give a crap about World War One. I. I mean, that's the sad part about this. Is like these last four years, people are actually paying attention to this because of the anniversary. But all of a sudden, it's not going to be all that interesting to a lot of people anymore. Yeah, which is I think unfortunate. Certainly, buy my book when it comes out. But if you don't buy my book, <laughs> buy some other book on World War One. Yeah. It's really interesting and it's really important. Well, and it's it, you know it's the beginning to a lot of the kind of embryonic forms of a lot of what we see later. On. I mean, politically, of course, it's everything that leads into World War Two with you know Nazism and all the kind of political separations that you get the great powers in World War II fighting against each other. Of Obviously, Russia and what happens to them is the beginning. I mean, I'm a Cold War historian. You ask me, when did the Cold War begin? I say 1917, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, so, so that's a good argument to no, be made. No, it really is. And, and I <laughs> think that's... Something that, to do so, with Bolshevism. <laughs> and if you, so if you don't understand this stuff, you know, you're like, oh, I care about is World War II, the Cold War. Well, then you're missing the beginning. Uh, and in World War One, unfortunately... Uh, only get short shrift because it's just not as sexy yeah. as the bombers and fighters and the Nazis and the atomic bombs and everything in World War II. 
but it's really the beginning of everything. And, well, and if you, it's a culmination of a lot of things too, right? You know, you go back to the Napoleonic period. You have yep. this hundred-year European Congress system culmination leading to this massive war. So, uh, this is me. You know, you have enough books to read already, but to get a chance to kind of take a peek at some World War One history, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Yes, there is. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.